National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments December 1st for Dobbs versus Jackson, which could reset the United States national abortion laws. Many pro-lifers were hopeful after the hearing. Law professor Teresa Collette weighs in. Then we turn to this season in which we prepare for Christmas and the true reason for our joy, Jesus. There are small ways to keep our families focused on the Christ child during the holidays, and author Anthony DeStefano has given us helpful resources through his children's books for many years now. He gives us his highlights today. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief and Executive Director of the National Catholic Register. So many newsrooms were consumed this past week on December 1st with the oral arguments at the Supreme Court. Uh, This is, of course, related to the Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks. And some believe this case could overturn Roe versus Wade and reset national abortion policy. Joining us to give insights about the oral arguments in Washington last Wednesday is Teresa Collette, a professor of the University of St. Thomas School of Law in Minnesota, and she's a frequent contributor to the Register's pages. Teresa, welcome. I'm delighted to join you. Thanks for having me. And I should, just as a courtesy, let our listeners know that you're speaking to us just having returned to Minnesota after being in Washington. And so you might, they might hear the airport in the background, but I'm so grateful <laughs> for, for you being with us today. And I, I hear that you were there. I was on the courthouse steps at the right. invitation of the Mississippi Attorney General. And By special invitation. <laughs> yes, it was lovely. And we were there to address the crowd and to explain to them our why the various people that were invited, you know, took the position supporting Mississippi that we did. And I was invited, I think, in my role as counsel of record for a brief representing 240 women scholars and professional women, all of whom had uh, doctorates, PhDs, MDs, uh, JDs, as well as several uh, women's groups, all of whom uh, believe clearly that the idea that abortion advances women in society or is necessary for women to advance in society is completely false. Right. And, and so we had Helen Alvarez on last week to talk about that brief. I think she was a part of that same brief that you all submitted. She was. And Absolutely. we had a, had a lovely conversation really just about what to expect. What was the climate like, uh, you know, being there uh, so close to where the arguments were happening, but also addressing the crowd? And I mean, you weren't way off in the distance. You were right there addressing those people who were there for this very important moment. It was clear that, and the, the Capitol Police had carefully Uh, Mm -hmm. put up uh, barriers between those who support the right to abortion and those who believe that abortion is the killing of a child. And so what was interesting was that our crowd, the crowd supporting Mississippi's prohibition, was larger and much younger. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> than could the see crowd. that. I could see that from images. <laughs> yes, I agree. Yeah. It was it was wonderful. And it was actually, it seems to me, much more diverse. I mean we had I I came to speak in my lawyer suit and my very <laughs> conservative apparel and 
one of the speakers in front of me had purple hair and a sign that said she was trans and a rape victim, and but she still supports the right to life. And so it was really America at its best in many ways. That's really important to hear. Uh, of the arguments themselves, um, what uh, you know, from your point of view, were the most striking lines of argumentation uh, during this? I'm going to say that again. From your point of view, what were the most striking lines of, of argumentation? Were there any surprises, too? Well, actually, you know, Justice Sotomayor has been called to task by the Wall Street Journal editorial yes. board for her uh, behavior during the arguments. And what struck me is that both she and Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan all seem to have accepted that something significant is going to happen in relationship to abortion doctrine, something that they want to resist, but they mm -hmm. despair of having the numbers, which is, frankly, good news for our side. Um, and so I was struck by Justice uh, Sotomayor trying to resurrect the argument uh, that had been made by a previous justice and completely um, disregarded by a majority of the justices since Roe versus Wade over 50 years that the only reason people want to protect unborn babies is because they have this deeply religious belief. And even in Roe versus Wade, the majority opinion says there are all sorts of views about when uh, life begins and and what's, what's the significant point at which we recognize the value of that human life. And this argument keeps being resurrected in a way that is just almost uh, insulting to a pro-life. I, I represented um, secular pro-life on mm -hmm. our brief. And there are people of diverse religious beliefs or no religious beliefs. We had, you know, women who were Democrats and Republicans and independents, and probably we had a few anarchists, no doubt. Uh, it's, it's just so obvious from biology and science right. that when life begins, and yet Justice Sotomayor, right out of the box, asked the Mississippi Solicitor General if this wasn't just simply a religious belief. And, you know, that, that's just really troubling because it's offensive. It's, uh, it's one of the talking points of the other side, but it's just simply false. Right. And again, that's another point that you and, and Helen Alvarez and the others who, uh, for that amicus brief you mentioned, it, it had so much related to the statistics and the facts and the science that support the research, that support that this isn't this isn't even just a moral issue. It's a, it's a matter of science uh, as well. And, and so I wanted to go to another point that seemed to be characterizing a lot of the argumentation, or at least some, not, I couldn't say a lot, but certainly a lot of media coverage, is that the, there's a politicization of the court. And they, it seems both sides believe that if, one, if it isn't decided one way or the other, it's politicized it's being politicized. Uh, how did that play out on Wednesday? And what are your thoughts about the court being political? Well, of course, that was the basis of the Wall Street Journal's criticism of Justice Sotomayor. And Justice Breyer uh, stressed concern about its perception that the court would be, as he, as they said in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, re reversing under fire. 
But the reality is, and it's been the reality since Roe came down, that there is no way to avoid members of the public perceiving the justice's opinion in this case, supporting a right that was judicially created with no text, history, or tradition uh, as pure political will. And so if they affirm Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey striking down the Mississippi law, they certainly are going to be, and with good reason, perceived as political actors. And frankly, the president himself furthered that uh, idea with his commission to expand the court and the threat mm-hmm. to expand the court from 9 to 13. The reality is the court's public reputation depends on what it does, not upon what it's concerned about. They need to actually be indifferent to public perception in order to actually earn the reputation and respect accorded a neutral arbitrator of these sort of political debates. And they should actually get out of it, which was, of course, the argument of Mississippi. All you're doing is hurting your own image and depriving the states of their lawful right to regulate this issue. Right. It's so interesting. I'm learning with my second grader, you know, about checks and balances. And here we are still talking about checks and balances on on really the highest level. Right. Um, That's correct. (laughs) I I want to know what your opinion is. Um, Were you hopeful? Pro-lifers seemed so hopeful that Roe would be overturned. And many thought the arguments were hopeful. And the questions that were asked by the justices uh, led to, you know, some drawing the conclusion that it certainly could be overturned. What what do you think is going to happen? If you had a crystal ball, I know everybody wishes they did. <laughs> well, I'm the curmudgeon, so... Okay, <laughs> give it to me. <laughs> I, <laughs> I need to litigating. have realism. Realism, please, give it to me. Mm-hmm. I've been litigating abortion for, you know, 30 years. Uh, and so uh, I've represented uh, states as special assistant attorney general. I've been in this fight for a long time. And if you are too young to remember, but when Planned Parenthood versus Casey was heard, immediately after the oral arguments, Justice Kennedy told then Chief Justice Rehnquist that he was going to vote with with the with he with the Chief Justice and three other justices giving us a majority. He was going to vote over rule row, and then Justice O'Connor came visiting. Mm. and changed his position. And so I am not sanguine given the clear efforts of the Chief Justice to steer the court to taking a position that accepts the constitutionality of the 15-week ban but still keeps the court involved in as Justice O'Connor herself called it in one opinion, the National Abortion Control Board. Mm. Uh, I am not sanguine that Roberts, given the prestige and his own intellectual power and persuasiveness, is not going to pull one of the justices we need to overrule Roe and Casey. I think it is quite possible that the the result in this case will look a lot like Planned Parenthood versus Casey in that we're not going to have a majority opinion. We will have, 
I anticipate four solid votes to overrule both. Your caution yes. is, is that it could be a positive movement, but a narrow one uh, related yes. to Roe. So positive Absolutely. in that the pro-life will get much more restrictions than they have, the uh, pro-life laws, Correct. but it would to expect a narrow uh, ruling versus a, a complete reversal of, of Roe versus Wade. Yes, that is well. my concern, and that's my best prediction. Absolutely. And I, I think some of those cautions are, are also reflected in Helen Alvarez's commentary at, this, at uh, ncregister.com. I invite our listeners to go to ncregister.com and look at that. It's Supreme Court's Dobbs versus Jackson, oral arguments promising for pro-life clause. And also on Monday, check the NC Register for Jerry Bradley's piece there, too. Teresa Collette, I, it's my pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you for bringing these wonderful insights to us. And um, we'll come back to you to see where things stand in July when we expect the, the uh, uh, decision to be made. Thank you for including me. When we come back, we'll be joined by Anthony Stefano about his children's books, especially those that help us prepare for Christmas. This is Register Radio on EWTN. Stay tuned for more. Archbishop Cordelione talks about the National Catholic Register. The Register's content is so critically important in the society we're living in now. There's an absence of the practice of religion in public life. So all the more important is it for people to be reading the Register so that they can acquire more understanding of our Catholic faith. I've appreciated the catechetical benefits of the content of the Register. It presents very clear Catholic teaching in a way that is easily digestible. To get six free issues, order online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. Call or click today. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register and your host here on Register Radio. Of course, I'm joined by Matthew Bunsen, my co-host. And, you know, every year around this time, the National Catholic Register prints gift guides uh, in our newspaper to feature gifts of a religious nature or gifts made by Catholics. Um, many of them come from EWTN's religious catalog and others are from, you know, smaller family businesses or whatnot. And this last one, our December 5th edition, included a bookish Christmas gift guide. And if you're like me, you never tire of another book, another good book. Uh, I've tried to impart this uh, love of books to my children as well. And it seems to be working because no matter how late they go to bed, they have to read a book. And today I'm happy to have Catholic author Anthony Stefano with us to highlight some of his wonderful children's books, some of which are on my children's shelves. Anthony, it's so wonderful to have you with us. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. 
So I, my, my first question is, you didn't start off writing children's books. You uh, wrote books for adults. Uh, so h- how is it that you came to write books for children? Well, actually, uh, the first book I ever wrote was a children's book. Oh, and wrong. it was a, Chris- a Christmas children's book named Little Star, which I wrote in high school for uh, a creative writing class, which was taught by a guy named Frank McCourt, who later went on to win the Pulitzer Prize for uh, a famous book and movie called Angela's Ashes. Uh, so I wrote it then, but it, it stayed in my drawer for, for 30 years until wow. I finally was able to get it published. Amazing. Uh, but I wrote adult books, but to show you how difficult it is to break into the children's book market, because there are so many submissions, so many people think they could write children's books, so the level of submissions is so much higher. Uh, I actually, it actually took me two best-selling adult books, a travel guide to heaven and, and ten prayers God always says yes to before a publisher would ever would even take a chance on one of my children's books. So it's actually more difficult to write children's books and get them published than adult books. Uh, that's interesting. So that's why in my research when I was looking you up, I actually saw those adult books first. They, <laughs> so, they, they were. Yes, they, they yeah. were. Well, very, very interesting. But but seriously, to my question, though, why why did you like to write children's books? I mean, what, what was it that captured you about um, uh, that style of writing? Well, you know, I've always tried to write simply. I, I, I write, try to write simply for adults and, and, and for children. Um, I think it really has to do with the, uh, the culture war that we're in the middle of, where, we, you know, our, our Christian values, our Catholic values are under attack. As we all know, you have to be blind not to see that right. there is a war on, on our values by uh, the forces of secularism. And those secular forces, they don't hesitate to try to jump over the heads of parents and use propaganda to, you know, indoctrinate children with the values of secular society. So I think just as, a, as, a, as any Christian who's interested in evangelization, uh, you, you, you have to be interested in trying to teach children from an early age the, uh, the values of our, of our faith. So it has to really tie to the, the, the new evangelization. Mm-hmm. Well, as a parent, I'm very happy to have resources like yours um, on on our bookshelf, you know, to be able to do that with my own children. Because yes, it is a battle. I feel it. I feel it constantly. I love that you often tell stories um, from self from salvation history uh, by telling the story of animals. Um, I mean, yeah. it's not like the kids know that they're listening to a story of salvation history. Um, one of the latest is is Joseph's donkey. Uh, give us a preview. Sure. Uh, Joseph's donkey is, uh, in a nutshell, it's about a donkey purchased by St. Joseph shortly before his marriage to Our Lady. Naturally, the donkey helps St. Joseph in his carpentry business, hauling stones and wood, as you might imagine. But because of uh, who he works for and the time and history that he's born, he also gets to play a key role in all the major events recorded in the uh, infancy narratives of the Gospels. So, for instance, he carries Mary into Bethlehem, where she gives birth to to Jesus. Uh, He takes the Holy Family to Egypt to flee from the evil King Herod. Uh, And later on, uh, he takes the whole Holy Family to Jerusalem, where the 12-year-old Jesus is, is lost in the temple and then found again. So this is a way of introducing children to all these famous Bible stories, and at the same time, uh, introducing them to the character of St. Joseph himself, because in this story, the, the donkey is really a mirror image, a personification of St. Joseph. You know, uh, another of the Christmas selections this year uh, for the Register is the, the Beggar and the Bluebird. It showcases uh, another of your story 
telling techniques, uh, you know, showing how the weakest seeming characters can also be God's helpers. It, it's uh, both the beggar and the bluebird who seem to too weak to do anything. Uh, talk a little bit more about that uh, particular narrative style that you have. Yes, well, The Beggar and the Bluebird, since you mentioned it, is kind of like a modern Christian fairy tale in the tradition of uh, Hans Christian Andersen or the Grimm Brothers or those early wonderful Disney movies like Snow White. Uh, it tells the story of a little bird whose fly, flight southward for the winter keeps getting delayed because of the strange requests of uh, a local street beggar. The beggar asks him to fly on these various errands of mercy for him, delivering uh, bread to a homeless man or, or money to a widow with children or a gold cross to a sick boy in the hospital. And as a result of performing those acts of mercy, the, burp, the bluebird actually gets caught in this winter blizzard, and it seems like it's the end for him uh, until uh, a surprise ending, which I think we could reveal here, uh, shows <laughs> that the, the street beggar is not really a beggar but an angel of God. And yes, there definitely is in, in this story and in many of the others this idea of uh, the weak being able to accomplish great things uh, if they, they are connected to God. Uh, I have books like The Donkey That No One Could Ride and Little Star. And yeah, they're, they're all about these characters who are, who are little. And you know, children, their children are little. Right. And it's a big, scary world. And, and fear is not just a problem for children, but it's a, it's a, it's, I think it's the biggest problem that adults have. We're afraid of so many things. We're afraid of our money problems and our uh, job problems and problems with family and our, 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 our kids. And most of all, we're afraid that we don't have what it takes to overcome the problems in our life. So, I, I, so both for the children who are reading these books and for the adults that are reading the books to them, it's important for them to be reminded that uh, all things are possible as long as you have God. That as long as you plug into the power source of the universe... Uh, you, you don't have to stay little. You can do great, great things. Well, there's a great line from uh, Carrie Crawford and Patricia Crawford in their review of uh, The Beggar and the Bluebird that the sacrifices offered in love by the little bird are treasured not only by their recipients, but by God, who can never be outdone in generosity. Well, that's, that's great. I, you know, in this, in this book, The, the Bluebird, um, he really is a kind of a figure of Christ. Uh, that's why we have, there are some illustrations of him carrying that cross flying through the air to deliver that cross to the, to the little boy in the hospital, and there's even a scene where the, the cross is leaning up against the bluebird. So the, the imagery there is definitely that this bird is, is Christ-like and that he's willing to face danger and sacrifice everything. And, this re and so we are called to be like Christ, so we're called to be like this little bluebird here. Uh, and, that, and, and so the book really becomes about the true meaning of, of not only gift-giving, but the true meaning of love, which is self-sacrifice and selflessness. I want to turn to your illustrations in a, in a minute. Uh, first, I want to make sure our, our listeners know who we're talking to. This is Jeanette Mello on Register Radio, and we're talking to Catholic author Anthony DeStefano about his children's books, and some of these are just great books uh, for Christmas um, for kids. And, and one of those is Joseph's Donkey. And, of course, I should mention uh, this is the, the end of the year of St. Joseph, right? I, I mean, so that must have been part of the reason why you're introducing 
producing this book uh, now. Is that the case, Anthony? You know, actually, I, I, it's not. I just got a little lucky with that. <laughs> I, I wrote a couple of books in the la- uh, last couple of years that were very popular on Our Lady, Our Lady's Wardrobe and Our Lady's Picture Book. And they were oversized books that were very beautifully illustrated. And I just wanted to have, I thought it would be nice to have a companion book for those books on Our Lady's Husband, St. Joseph. So I had it in mind to write a book about I mean, he's one of the greatest saints of all time. He's the patron of the Universal Church. He's the husband of Our Lady, the foster father of Jesus, the protector of the Holy Family. And yet there's not many books out there about him, not many children's books. So I wanted to write a companion book to those other books. And I just sort of got lucky that uh, it was announced that this would be the year of St. Joseph. And we tried hard to to sort of get it in under the wire because the year ends, I think, December 8th. Yeah, indeed. Uh, it's uh, uh, You mentioned the, the book about Mary's wardrobes. It's one of my mother's favorite books, and it's something that she wanted her grandchildren uh, to have and to see. And so, you know, that's another thought for people. It's, it's certainly great for grandparents to have these kind of books on their shelves as well. So, But back to the illustrations. I mean, that book yeah. is beautiful. Every single one of them is just they're they're beautifully illustrated. I understand it's not the same uh, illustrator for each of the books. I, I try to use different illustrators, illustrators who can best carry out the mission and convey the message of the book. But yes, I always want the quality. To, to me, there's no reason in the world why these why Catholic books shouldn't have illustrations as good as the best Disney movies. I mean, why should the secular world have the greatest illustrations and we have mediocre illustrations? We're telling the greatest story in the world here, the story of Jesus Christ. So I go out of my way, and even if it costs me my own uh, advance, I will get the best illustrators. And in, in this case... Uh, the, the illustrator's name is Juliana Kolosova. She's a Russian-born artist who specializes in uh, photorealistic-type paintings. And I used her for both Joseph's Donkey and for the books on Mary, Our Lady's Wardrobe, and Our Lady's Picture Book, because I wanted to convey a theological truth, namely that, that Our Lady and St. Joseph are real. They're not pretend, make-believe, fictional characters that kids see on their video games or see on the TV shows they watch in, and on the weekends. These are real, live, human being saints, and the, one of the best ways to convey that is by having illustrations that are so realistic that children feel they can reach out and actually touch the characters. That's definitely the case. I mean, my, my husband loves, you know, that more realistic art, um, but this has that feel of, of that realism, but it's still for a child. I mean, the, yeah. the, the way people, the children's faces or the animals' faces are conveyed um, are really for the child's eyes. I mean, they pull that, they attract that child. So very, very beautifully done. Um, Anthony, where's the best place for everybody to find your, your work? You know, I'm very, very blessed. My books are all over the place. You can go to EWTN. They're often in the religious catalog. They're uh, you know, on Amazon.com. They're at Sophia Institute Press, the publisher. They're available in Catholic bookstores all over the place. They're available in Barnes & Noble. Uh, I've been very lucky in the distribution of, of my books. Well, of course, you can also find little reviews of those books at ncregister.com. If you search Christmas 2021 children's books, you'll find several of his. And you could also search Christmas 2020, and you'll find several Christmas books by Anthony DeStefano. Remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, to check out the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. As always, thanks for joining us here on Register Radio on EWTN. 
For Matthew Bunton and our producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello. Until next week, God bless you. For more information about the National Catholic Register and about Register Radio, go to ncregister.com. Podcasts of Register Radio are posted on ncregister.com and on EWTN.com. Join us next week at this time for Register Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.